Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School of Public Policy, where the region's leading graduate policy school. And you can find out more about our degree courses and our short courses by going to crawford.anu.edu.au. This is a special extra part. It's an event that was recorded here at the Australian National University last week. And it's part of a series of live panel discussions looking at the issues arising from the Australian election. It's a really great discussion with some outstanding panellists and I think you're going to enjoy it. This is the third of four events to be held at ANU looking at the election. And if you're interested to register to attend future events, go to anu.edu.au forward slash events. First up, you're going to hear from the event's moderator, Catherine McGrath, and she will introduce the panellists. Dr. Shiro Armstrong of the Australia-Japan Research Centre, a frequent Policy Forum podcast, Jacinta Carroll of the ANU National Security College, Associate Professor Meg Keane of the ANU Department of Pacific Affairs, Anne McNaughton, who was recently on our Brexit pod from the ANU College of Law, and last but certainly not least, our very own Professor Sharon Bessel. And if you're hungry for more sizzling election analysis, why not check out our new podcast? It's called Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage, uh, and each week Mark gathers an expert panel to discuss the week's election campaign. We're on the last legs of that. People actually go to the polls this very Saturday, so uh, next Monday's episode will be a bit of a wash-up of the campaign so far, and we'll, we will know the outcome and what policies might actually come out of that. It'll be a very interesting discussion indeed. Like I said, it's out every Monday. You can find links to it in the show notes for this pod, or by visiting our website, policyforum.net. And hey, if you want to continue to discuss the issues raised on this podcast or any of the podcasts that we put out, the best way to do that is to join our Facebook podcast group. You can find us on Facebook as Policy Forum Pod. Just jump in there. It'll be great to have you on board and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. We'll be back with our regular Policy Forum pod on Friday, which this week takes a look at the issue of energy and climate policy in the context of the Australian election. And then we'll be back with Mark Kenny's pod on Monday. But for now, sit back, put the headphones on, grab a nice cup of tea and enjoy this fantastic event. So what a terrific panel we have for this topic on Australia and the world and Australia in the world. Because if you have noticed, actually, Australia in the world hasn't been much of a conversation piece during the campaign. But to be honest, it often isn't. Even during the heyday of... I'm thinking when um, when, uh, 
Julie Bishop during all those years when Julie Bishop was foreign minister, when the elections came around, she'd often stopped talking about foreign affairs and was straight into politicking on local issues. So it's not unusual, and this time again, there has not been uh, much discussion of foreign policy and Australia's engagement. But you might have noticed Labor has put out a plan. They've put out their policy. It's called the Future Asia Plan. We're going to talk a bit about that. The coalition's policy is very much based on the foreign affairs white paper that is already in the domain. It's already being rolled out. It is already in place. And the panel has got lots of thoughts about all of that, how that policy is going, how much support, action and funding and policy development and programs are behind that the ALP program, what that looks like, uh, and the key issues that we face in international affairs. So, so much to discuss. Now, just a few housekeeping matters. Uh, the ANU has released a conversation series leading up to the election, and you can view that online. Go to ANU Federal Elections 2019, and you can find it there. This session is being recorded uh, you can upload it later using the hashtag AUJoin and OzVotes. You can follow us on Twitter at ANUEvents and I'm on Twitter at Kath McGrath. Now, I'm not part of the ANU, so what the heck am I doing here? Well, it's always good to have an ex-journo around to hopefully just ask a few of those questions that place some of this discussion in the current setting of Australia. So I covered elections over the last 20 years, and this is the first time in a very, very long time that I haven't been covering a federal election. And frankly, it's quite fun on this side because you can burl in and burl out of political issues with far more general interest than when you're in the daily media. So it's great to be doing that. My world these days is travelling Australia, doing conferences and events as a facilitator and MC, and also training people. And most people do say to me these days, is that seriously a job? And uh, it is kind of. So it's great to be here and to share this with you tonight. So. I'd like to start by introducing our panel. Dr Shiro Armstrong is from the Australian-Japan Research Centre at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And I'll just say we've got three people from Crawford here tonight, so it's great. Welcome, Shiro. Uh, Professor Sharon Bessel is from the Children's Policy Centre, also at the Crawford School of Public Policy, and Ms Jacinta Carroll from the National Security College at the Crawford School of Public Policy as well. Associate Professor Meg Keane, the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs, and Anne McNaughton from the ANU Centre of Commercial Law. Welcome, all of you. We're going to start off with Jacinta Carroll. I'm going to start by introducing her, and I'll introduce each of the academics a little bit more as we speak to them. So Jacinta Carroll is a Senior Research Fellow, Counterterrorism and Social Cohesion at the Australian National University National Security College. Her career experience includes working on national security, counterterrorism, strategic policy, border security, military operations, campaign planning and scenario development. And Jacinta tells me she's just back from very large international discussion on different countries' engagements with uh, counterterrorism, with um, international defence and security. So Jacinda is very much in that world. And the National Security College, in case you don't know, much of what they do is educating <coughs> Australia's public servants on all of these issues. So Jacinda is very much involved in that. So Jacinda, starting with you, if we look at the federal election and the stance of the major parties, What's your perspective now, a week and a half until polling day? Well, if we look around the world, um, the thing I was just reflecting on as you were talking then, Catherine, is yeah, we live in the 
excuse me, the best of times and the worst of times. There are extraordinary things happening around the world uh, in developing wealth, in connecting us all through global communications, connecting our finances. But this is, <clears throat> excuse me, leading to other things, great power rivalries, uh, something that came through very much in the questions that many of you put in, having to decide do we go with our economic strength or with our, our security strength. A breaking down of traditional barriers that we, we very neatly had around the various issues in the international realm. Not just looking at the economy, we have to look at foreign interference. Uh, not just looking at military and defence activities with other countries, but looking at violent non-state actors. And also looking at other countries that seek to use those to make their own uh, benefit. So... One thing that is interesting in looking at the positions of both parties for this election is that they've come down uh, on the word disruption together. We live in a disruptive international environment and we really have to ground Australia in who Australia is. And on this, their environmental scan is broadly the same. And for those of us who work in these areas, I think that's, that's a good thing. There isn't a particularly ideological uh, difference in the way the world looks. And we have benefited from having the foreign policy white paper that came out two years ago because um, it wasn't just a statement of what's Australia going to do in the world. It was a product of a lot of consultation and many of us were involved in the consultations to inform the government's understanding at that time about what was going on in the world and what Australia should do. That, for the first time, put values into the foundation of Australia's uh, uh, presence globally. Things that we intrinsically know, human rights, rule of law, liberal democracies, but it put it at the foundation point. And the ALP has transitioned this, this discussion of values, uh, I would say quite naturally. They talk a lot, as we'd expect, about uh, human rights, humanitarianism, multilateral engagement, but they've put that at the foundation as well. And I think that bodes well for us because these little mentions of um, the word bipartisan comes up many times in the ALP's piece, and I see a lot of things that are reflecting the foreign policy white paper. Some things that are different, though. Uh, there are some very general discussions. We'll get into US-China a bit later, but there's very general discussion of saying, oh, well, you know, is it the economy or is it security? Um, both of these have, have important roles, but there's not a lot else there, not a lot more that's, that's out of the conventional understanding. And I think we'll dig into that uh, a bit later on. Uh, some of the other things, though, that are interesting is that you can see uh, some particular interest uh, in, the, in the ALP piece that will, would look like a very different Australian presence. Multilateral engagement, Australia being involved very aggressively in United Nations activities, uh, uh, pushing for LGBTI rights as a very significant piece of, of the party platform, and uh, nuclear disarmament also being a significant part of the platform. This is something we haven't seen for some years in a stated foreign policy piece. It reflects some of what we saw in the Rudd years, uh, but mainly the difference is uh, around, these, around these details of a much more multilaterally engaged and helpful focused Australian uh, presence globally. But I don't think it's going to vary too differently from many of the things that have been put in place already uh, out of the foreign policy white paper. So this is a good thing. Jacinta, thanks. That's a really great <coughs> opening. Associate Professor Meg Keane joined the Department of Pacific Affairs 
in 2015. Now, for those of you who've been involved or going to ANU events for a long time or part of the ANU, you'll know this section as uh, the area formerly known as State, Society and Governance in Melanesia program and how active that program has been over such a long period of time. So Meg is now with it, now called the Department of Pacific Affairs. Um, Meg had 10 years as a senior analyst in the Oceania Oceania branch of the Office of National Assessments and a year as a senior policy advisor in the Regional Assistance Mission to the Solomon Islands. Her current research focuses on urbanisation in the Pacific, sustainable oceans management and regional governance in the Pacific. So Meg, looking at the two parties and their approach towards the Pacific particularly, there's been a shift. But the Pacific is constantly in the news, I guess, in a dramatic way, quickly, and then it goes away again. I mean, it's in the headlines today. Peter O'Neill, um, PNG Prime Minister, is facing a no-confidence motion. Can you give us a quick uh, thought about how that might impact on Australia? And to what extent have both parties changed their attitude towards the Pacific during this term? OK, it's a bit of a train. Building on um, what Jacinta was saying, that white paper is about security and stability in the region. And one of the places we worry a lot about is the Pacific Island countries. They're our front yard, our backyard, our family, depends which politician's talking. They're close to us. Uh, their security will affect ours. It's the closest thing we have to a border. It's our porous ocean boundary all around us. If there's illegal activity in their area, it's usually targeting Australia. It comes through the region to us. So we spend a lot of time on this region, and uh, both parties are dedicated to something we'll talk about a little bit later, I think the step up, but an enhanced engagement in this region. Uh, we've invested very heavily. So PNG, uh, frankly, hasn't had as many changes as Prime Minister as Australia has recently, so we talk about stability, but my Pacific colleagues like to... Uh, remind me that uh, we've had our own challenges. Nonetheless, we do have the leadership uh, challenge in Papua New Guinea. Uh, now, just remember, this is a country of 8 million people, so 80% of the population of the Pacific Island countries is in this country. Uh, if you wanted to swim to Papua New Guinea from our territory to theirs, you could do it. You'd dodge a few crocodiles, but it's close. Uh, it's, it's the closest neighbour we have. And we're highly invested in PNG, Labour and Liberal governments. It's this place where we spend a lot of our aid, about $550 million a year, so about half of what goes into the Pacific, which is our largest chunk of the aid budgets, about 15% of our aid. Uh, as it, and most of you will know here, we have had colonial ties with them. We've been involved with PNG since its independence. Uh, when there have been disturbances and problems, Bougainville, we've, we've been there. We've got a lot of investment, human investment, financial investment, aid investment, every kind of investment possible in this country. So we worry when it's starting to look a little unstable. What I would say about Papua New Guinea is this time around it's exercising its democratic rights. There is nothing wrong with this vote of no confidence. It is legal. It is not a coup. Uh, the opposition members have waited their 18 months, which they have to do constitutionally. That ended in February. They are now challenging Prime Minister O'Neill. This is a leadership uh, Transition, it's not a governance transformation. The people who are challenging, there's O'Neill, he's been around for about a decade at least in politics. Marape, who's challenging him, has also been around, in fact, only a month ago was his finance minister. 
This is the same elite cohort shuffling the chairs around uh, the table. Whatever happens next week, O'Neill gets up. He's a master of building alliances, of politics. Uh, whatever happens, O'Neill gets up or the opposition gets up, you could well see unrest in Port Moresby. And that's the nature of the frustration in that country, uh, as is some other places around the region. They have a wealth in mineral resources, in fisheries, in oil palm. They should be doing really well. And poverty is increasing. Uh, health is going backwards. So they have res uh, TB resistant, antibiotic resistant TB. We're seeing polio. Uh, their education is not servicing their people. The youth can't get access to jobs. You go to Port Moresby, uh, about 50% of the people are living in squatter settlements. This is not a place where people feel that they are empowered. So there's a lot of frustration with the O'Neill government. All these developments have happened, and we're not getting development. And so in terms of both parties, do you see any difference in approach towards the Pacific in general? Uh, this Thank goes you. to our aid program, and what's the return on investment for our aid? The Labour Party has said they will review aid performance. Uh, and whether we're getting investment return on investment. There's an interesting article by the Dev Policy people um, suggesting that PNG has one of the lowest returns on our investment in aid. So Labour said they will look at it again. Uh, Liberal Party is trying to take a different approach, which is to invest more in infrastructure and things that may be game changers rather than only in government programs. Okay. Meg, thanks very much. Dr Shiro Armstrong is the Director of the Australia-Japan Research Centre and Director of the East Asia Bureau of Economic Research at the ANU. He's also the co-editor and the co-founder of both the East Asia Forum and the East Asia Forum Quarterly. So, Shiro, you're writing on all of these subjects all the time, but your specific area of interest is uh, Japan-Australia relationships and Japan-Australia economic relationships. How do you view the current parties and the political debate around North Asia right now for Australia? Uh, yeah, look, there's, there's not much difference between the two major parties in their approach to Northeast Asia, um, which is a good thing. Uh, but there are differences in nuance, uh, and the main one really is on China. Now that's, that's what I think we're all interested in, in because it's the most important economic relationship for us. Uh, and on China... Look, uh, before Malcolm Turnbull was overthrown as Prime Minister, he uh, made a speech trying to reset the relationship. We'd gone through a rough patch. Uh, and then Scott Morrison, as Prime Minister, uh, has tried to keep that up and, and has made some um, positive remarks in his speeches, trying to get the balance right with our relationship with China. Um, Bill Shorten uh, has made it quite clear, I think, that... Um, he doesn't see China as just a threat and that we need to engage China. Uh, and so, again, there's that approach from Labor of balancing um, the different interests in the China relationship. And this is something that we have to manage. Um, it's not something that we can try to follow the Americans on. Americans are trying to put China in a box right now, trying to contain China to an extent and to decouple the U.S. economy from the Chinese economy. Um, that's something we need to avoid uh, and work with other countries on, on avoiding. So uh, I think the Labour plan is to engage Asia more broadly and to, to work with China through that, through that lens. Now, Shiro, because you are the expert on this, I think everyone wants some answers because it is such a topical 
issue, as you just brought out. Now, Bill Shorten said in his recent quote and interview with the Fin Review, um, the Labor government would be less antagonistic towards China. Uh, not every dealing should be from a position of fear. What does he mean by that, do you think? Well, I think um, we're trying to balance what is now um, a difficult relationship between the United States and China, whereas uh, the US and China um, were getting on relatively well, I think quite well until, until recently, because that relationship was managed um, within the rules-based order and the system that the United States and many of us other countries set up and the US was leading. Um, now, the growth of China has uh, impacted that system, impacted the global economy uh, significantly. China is the largest trader in the world, second largest economy. It's the largest economy by some measures. Uh, and so this is a big adjustment for us, for other countries, and for the U.S., importantly. Um, U.S. Is, is relatively smaller, and it is becoming relatively smaller and smaller. So there's an inclination in the United States to try to um, really, it's become more bipartisan in the United States, to try to hanker back to a Cold War type, type era. Um, there's a, a trade war going on right now. The provost mentioned the tweets. Um, this is just one way of the, the Americans trying to remain um, dominant in the global system uh, and try to squeeze China's um, rise as much as possible. And I think that's across a large number of things that we can see um, from uh, technology, um, R&D, to even now stopping visas. Now, it's not all the United States' fault, but the, the response from the United States um, is not congenial to our interests. Um, uh, this trade war is undermining the entire global trading system. It's not just aimed at China. Uh, it's the Trump's America First agenda, uh, which is tariffs sprayed around the world at, at all our countries. Uh, and what is really at stake is global prosperity. So I think that's where um, there's an inclination for some countries to hanker to the US alliance and see China through a prism of a security threat. Um, it's a different system, political system to ours, and we have to manage that. So there is a, a fear of the unknown, a different political system, um, and the US response right now is destabilizing, I think. You know, there's great power transitions going on. Um, uh, it, it is going to be a bit of a test, actually a very significant test to either party, whoever wins the election. Thanks, Sarah. And it is going to be a great topic for discussion tonight, no doubt, as well. Uh, Anne McNaughton is the director of the ANU Centre for Commercial Law and a former deputy director of the ANU Centre for European Studies. Anne's research focuses on the EU as a unique legal system in international law. And Anne has, pioneer, uh, Anne has pioneered a linkage between the... Uh, uh, the EU through grants, uh, the EU and research with the ANU, which is a very new area and a multidisciplinary approach to ANU research uh, of the of the EU. So, Anne, welcome. Thanks now, so in much, terms Catherine. of all of the debate in this region, is about uh, North Asia and our near neighbourhood in the Pacific. In Europe, the debates are very different. Brexit, Russia, and uh, and what the future of the EU. So. What are we missing here if, as an Australia, Australians looking at the EU and is the EU giving enough attention to this part of the world? Uh, thanks very much, Catherine, and uh, hello, everybody. It's good to be here. Uh, 
The EU has a couple of things I always like to message. Number one, the EU is not this monolith, as I'm sure you're all aware. The EU is currently still 28 member states and works collectively with this um, very strong, deep institutional structure to do what it does. The EU has had <coughs> a long-standing relationship with Australia. It is uh, from time to time perhaps fraught, and uh, we only have to mention agriculture for some people to start to twitch. Uh, but the EU has is, a, is a, a past performer in using soft power, and it has had to do that because historically it has not had the hard power. Now, in recent times and with the development of the institutional structures and the common foreign and security policy within the EU, there is, I would describe it personally as flirtation with uh, hard uh, hard power, but the EU is predominantly about soft power, the exercise of influence, cooperation, dialogue. Now, that applies as much internally as it does transnationally. The EU and Australia cooperate quite deeply in both the region here and in the international forum, NATO, WTO and so on. And currently we are in the process of negotiating uh, a free trade agreement, so described, with the EU uh, with uh, early stages of negotiation, but things are going quite well so far. Uh, picking up on a couple of things, if I may briefly, things that uh, Jacinta and Megan Shiro have said, Jacinta commented on the fact that with the white paper and the focus of Australian foreign policy, we've put values back at the centre, at the heart of the position here. And this is certainly the basis of the EU because it is a creature of law. It's a treaty-created entity. It is not a sovereign state, never will be a sovereign state. Uh, and as such, it needs to anchor explicitly its mission, its activity, its engagement in principles which dovetail uh, very closely with those that Australia and New Zealand and uh, other a number of other countries around the world share. I'd hasten to add that, of course, there's often a difference between the aspiration and the observance, but the fact remains that we're looking at shared understandings of tolerance, inclusivity, observance and protection of the rule of law. These sorts of principles are back at the centre of our relationship with the EU and more broadly. Picking up on uh, Shiro's comment about the international uh, world order for trade, again, that system was developed on the basis of a particular set of values and principles, and these uh, should not be challenged uh, as they are being at the moment. So what's common to all of this is this shared understanding, this shared set of values. One final point, uh, which made me smile listening to Meg's discussion about the um, vote of no confidence. Of course, in the United Kingdom recently, there was a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister Theresa May. And the situation around Brexit uh, has resulted in something of a stasis. But we don't have the same kind of discussions about what that might mean there, as Meg was alluding to when we're looking at our northern neighbours. I'll just leave it there for the moment. And thank you very much. So to social policy, social inclusion and human rights, that is the special area of interest of Professor Sharon Bessel. Sharon, welcome. Sharon is the Professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy, where she is a Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Sharon also co-leads the ANU 
Individual Deprivation Measure, the IDM program, which is a partnership between the ANU, the International Women's Development Agency and the Australian Government, funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So Sharon, from your perspective, where does Australia sit now as a global leader or non-leader on these topics of social inclusion, human rights, social policy? Thanks, Catherine. Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, I'd preface those comments, I think, by just commenting on the work that Freedom House does and the Global Freedom Index. So some of you may be familiar with, with this um, organisation. Since the early 1980s, it has annually um, undertaken a ranking of countries around the world to determine how free they are or how free they are not. And that's based on a range of indicators around political rights and civil liberties. Um, and from the 1980s, we, we were seeing positive improvements in freedoms around the world. Um, and the freedoms that Freedom House uses in the index are drawn out of the international human rights framework. So there was a, there are always bad news stories, but there was a relatively good news story for a couple of decades. Since 2005, for the past 13 years, we've consistently seen freedom around the world decreasing on that index. So that's countries consistently going down in their rank in, in terms of their level of, of freedom. And within countries where we've seen improvements and declines, the declines have tended to outweigh the improvements within countries. So Jacinta mentioned the best of times and the worst of times. I think from the point of view of human rights and freedoms around the world, that's a really worrying story. Um, Australia still ranks very well on that index. We're in the top five countries. We're ranked as scoring 98 out of 100 on freedoms in this country. Where we lose a couple of points are around our policies towards asylum seekers, um, our policy around Indigenous Australians, um, and issues around the dismantling of the welfare state and issues of inequality. Um, but Australia still does very, very well. Australia historically has taken a leadership role globally, and Mike began by saying Australia's a middle power. We've always liked to see ourselves as a middle power that punches above its weight. And we've often done that by taking a moral leadership role globally on issues of human rights, equality and so on that, that reflect our values. And of course Australia was central to the establishment of the, or the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. But I think what, the, the point that I would want to make is that in terms of our place in the world... We position ourselves in the world and we influence the world in two ways. One is through the foreign policies that we adopt that we've been discussing. And the other is through the policies and the values that we exhibit domestically and the way they are then emulated around the world or the way they're responded to around the world. And so I, I wanted to make a, a couple of points in relation to that. So Australia has played, as I said, a leadership role in um, the development of the international human rights framework, but also around promoting gender equality. So Australia was one of the first countries in the world to have a gender budget where we would subject domestic budget decisions and policies to see how they impacted particularly on women. And we had that in place from the early 1980s um, right through until 2014 when the Abbott government dropped the, the women's budget. 
That policy was picked up and emulated by countries around the world. And so Australia was promoting through our aid program, gender equality um, in the countries that we give development assistance to, but we were also emulating that. Now, the Brookings Institute last year released a paper to show that one of the policies that's of Australia that's being emulated around the world and, and looked at particularly closely by European leaders is offshore processing of asylum seekers. So I just kind of juxtapose those two things to see where we've shifted in terms of the kinds of values that we are demonstrating. So I think it's a very positive thing that the Foreign Policy White Paper has explicitly taken a values position, um, and gender equality and human rights are central to that. Um, but I think in terms of our place in the world, we need to think very deeply about what we're doing at home, just not what we're talking about internationally. Sharon, thank you very much. And when you registered to come tonight, some of you filled in the survey for to nominate, have the chance to nominate the subjects you were interested in. And the ones that rated the highest from you were relations with the Asia-Pacific, global inequality, global security, and US-China tensions. I think we've covered most of that in the opening statements from everyone. We haven't really looked at global security. So I'm going to ask the panel to have a, a punt at that. And I think in general, just feel free to jump in whenever you want. And we're going to get some questions from the audience, plus uh, some from the online uh, survey. So who'd like to take a stab at that? Where are we at with uh, international security? And what are both parties saying about it? I'm happy to <laughs> dive into my favourite area. <clears throat> Excuse my, my cough. One thing I'd say, I'll actually start with the US-China piece, and there are a few fantastic questions that, that you provided talking about this, uh, this narrative and making a choice, and, and a couple of great questions saying, well, should we even be talking about a choice, and is this, this dichotomy appropriate? It very much is in terms of security, and one of the things that's really interesting is that uh, it's become, as I mentioned earlier, uh, China economy, US security. And of course, that's not the case <clears throat> alone. Um, and I would just make a, a bit of a shout out that some of the very sim simplistic understandings we have about foreign policy uh, dangerously may then drive policy without a lot of other depth. So there's no one in this room that wouldn't have heard about China being Australia's number one trading partner. But you can show a hand or have a mental show of hands about um, who is the number one source of foreign direct investment in Australia and has been for a number of years. And that's the United States of America. China is number nine. Um, I'm not an economist, but when I look at economics, it is extremely complex. There are many, many elements of it. Uh, trade, trade in goods, but also in services. The movement of people, the free movement of people. Uh, so each country has their own element. One thing that we've we've seen with the United States and EU members as well, uh, and very much Australia, is that there are a group of countries in the world um, who have been committed to uh, going outside their countries to assist the security of the globe. Sometimes that's worked out well. Sometimes that has not worked out well. Sometimes there have been consequences. Um, I've, I've spent a lot of time working in the Middle East and I can tell you there's not an American I met who intended Iraq to end up the way it did. Um, and we can give some reasons about why they should have known better. <clears throat> but this is a very complex environment. One thing that is interesting is that um, in this false separation 
I'll note I, I work on uh, counterterrorism and extremism as my main area of focus. And this is a world where um, black and white sits very comfortably. The world is very simple. There is one, there's one group that is right. There is everybody else probably that is wrong. There is one very simple understanding of the past and one very simple uh, envisaging of the future. And when I hear discussions of US or China, um, you know, rules-based law or different political systems just doing their own thing in a different way, I, I get a bit concerned about the simplicity of that. It, it pretends that we don't have uh, groups within, particularly in the Indo-Pacific, who are collaboratively working every day of the week. Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia and the Philippines are conducting joint patrols in the trilateral sea lanes to try to stop the movement of people smugglers and to try and stop the movement of weapons. And that has played a significant part in calming down uh, terrorist activities in the southern Philippines. Every country I can think of... Um, that is a <clears throat> in the, the usual suspects of India, Japan, most of the ASEAN countries are actively engaging in security issues collaboratively and multilaterally to try and make the world a better place. Now, just I'm going to jump in up. here to say because mm. I want to get um, from Shiro and Anne their perspective too. Shiro, what's your view of international security in general? Because there's the rest of the world that is not China and Japan, it's everywhere else, and there is such a focus on that right now. So as someone who specialises in that area, what's your take on uh, the other global perspective, Nan, also from Europe? Sure. Well, yeah, look, I, I'm an economist, so I see this as, um, you know, global security, what underpins our national security and global security is economic security as well. And I think that is what is at risk right now. Um, and, you know, we focused on the US and China because that is a fault line. Um, now I want to talk a bit about Japan because it has a potentially very important role to play. Uh, but the United States is making the management of all this harder. I should say the, Amer the Trump America First agenda is making this much harder by disengaging from multilateralism, from undermining not just domestic institutions in the United States, but international institutions. You know, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, um, undermining the World Trade Organization. Uh, and I don't think that should be um, ignored. Um, the United States is vetoing judge appointments to the appellate body. You know, that all sounds kind of complicated, but it's the dispute settlement system within the WTO. So it's the enforcement of the rules. Now, come December, if we don't resolve this problem, if the US doesn't stop vetoing judges, we have no enforcement mechanism for the global rules of trade, which is underpinning all our prosperity. It's stopping countries from um, raising barriers against other countries, from economic, blunt economic coercion. So there are real risks to our economic security, which I think is quite clear in our region, at least, where we, we depend on openness, um, uh, and the global trading system, this directly impacts our political security. So, you know, how might we deal with this? The United States and China are currently negotiating a, a bilateral deal um, to try to resolve some of these issues. I think any deal we'll see will be a temporary deal. It's not going to address the underlying issues that are causing tension between the two. And we can't sit idly by and let these two giant powers carve up the world. The best case scenario is a deal moving to manage trade with their own dispute settlement system outside of the multilateral system. Uh, the, the Chinese are agreeing to buy a lot of agriculture and energy from the United States. 
we're also a supplier of agriculture and energy, uh, but it's, it's really the system that's at risk. So we have, I guess, a small chance, and this is where middle powers are important, like Australia, I mentioned a few others, and, and Indonesia and countries in our region, uh, but Japan is president of the G20 right now, the group of 20 um, largest economies, almost the 20 largest economies in the world, uh, and Japan is convening the G20 summit in Osaka at the end of June, which is pretty soon. That's going to be five weeks or so after uh, the elections over here, uh, and including elections in um, a few other countries too. But our prime minister, our leadership, is going to have to get around in their head very quickly how to manage some of these problems because we want multilateral settlements to these things, uh, to these US-China tensions. We want the multilateral system to be represented. We want um, interests to be negotiated and um, to come to terms with in the multilateral system. So I think there's a lot at stake. Now, Japan hasn't made, it so, made this easy for itself. Usually the G20 summit is held later in the year, in November or something, um, October or November, but Japan is holding it in June because it has upper house elections in July. Uh, and also Japan is dealing with its own issues with the Trump administration, negotiating a bilateral deal, um, a bilateral trade deal that if it doesn't get completed and if Trump is unhappy, Trump has promised to put tariffs on Japanese cars and that'll devastate Japan's most important um, export industry, one of Japan's most important industries. And so there's really a lot at stake here. Sure, thank you. And I think you're pointing there to important points for Australia and its role as a middle power because that is where Australia can exert influence. And mentioning there... Um, Jacinta as well, the role of ASEAN countries in the near neighbourhood often not give enough, enough attention more broadly in the media but very much the attention of Australian policymakers. and good to talk about how engaged our politicians are in that. But Anne, from an EU perspective, from a European perspective, it's a very different discussion right now, isn't it? It is and um, I guess what I'd like to speak to about this point on security is that the tenor tends to be to talk, as we've just heard, on, fit, on hard security and mm. militarised positions. And my own research and the work that I've done for a good number of years now has been to try and understand the implications on the ground of what happens at the international level and to do this in terms of um, economic integration and the multilateral system. So that in terms of the EU, yes, there's a common foreign and security policy. It's been in place since uh, uh, really 1992. Uh, it has taken some time, but it's a, a strength of the EU that it has evolved over time so that there is a coherent collective. Uh, the policy is prosecuted through the European Council. And again, as I've said, because it's an institution, at the EU is create its creation of the treaties uh, that establish it, we need to always look, as I described it, to the rule book to see the scope of these institutions, what they can do and, and how far they go. When the original communities were set up back in the middle of last century, there was also a proposal to try and set up a European defence community and that founded predominantly through the intervention and the position of France. Now that seems to be being a little resurrected and part of that is in response to the US position of withdrawing from Europe in terms of hard and military position. I'm not a, a security or defence hard uh, edge uh, researcher or scholar in that regard. Uh, 
the strength of the EU, though, notwithstanding these discussions, notwithstanding the concerns with Russia and the intervention and a lot of internal as well as border issues, the strength of the EU continues to be its capacity for dialogue, for, for engagement, for exercising soft power and pursuing uh, collaboration because it must. It has not traditionally had the hard power, the military force, that it can rely on it in a, implicitly in, in, in attempts to prosecute its particular position the way the US, for example, has been able to do. Um, and so it has had to rely on soft power, persuasion, engagement. I don't for a minute suggest that it's not self-interested as an entity, as a block, however you might like to describe it. But the great strength I'm convinced of both of the EU and also of the multilateral system, which is why I defend and support it, <coughs> is because while we are talking, while we are engaging and discussing with one another, we are less likely to be reaching for hard military and militarised responses, number one, and number two, we are less likely to be pulling up the drawbridge as regrettably the Trump administration, well, the president seeks to be seems to be wanting to do. And whenever we're conversing, we're getting to know one another in an, in, a, in an environment where we need to have much clearer understanding of the parties with whom we deal, our ASEAN <coughs> colleagues, uh, our colleagues within the EU, the EU and Australia, because Australia for the EU, because we're a middle power, Australia and New Zealand here in this region are valuable and significant strategically to the EU because of our geographical position, but our European heritage. So uh, in terms of uh, the complexity of, uh, of, of the EU position and military, yes, there's a lot happening in terms of the hard security and hard securitisation, uh, but there's an awful lot of uh, more significant work, in my view, in the soft exercise of soft power. Mm -hmm. Can I, can I just pick up on that point that, that Anne makes about the importance of soft power? And, of course, that plays out in multiple ways. And one avenue through which soft power can be exercised and where those, those dialogues can happen is through overseas development assistance and the, the aid program. And I think th this is somewhere where Australia has had a particularly important role in the region. So Australia has had a, a, a very long history of a very strong relationship with Indonesia for many reasons, but in part because Australia has played such an important role in investing in Indonesia's development. Um, and what we've seen recently in the aid program is a shift towards the Pacific, which I think many of us would argue is a very good thing, but that has been a shifting of aid funds rather than an expansion and an inclusion of the Pacific. Um, and we've seen a shift away from our commitment to aid um, in the last budget in Southeast Asia or across Asia. Um, so in Pakistan, for example, where Australia has a very small aid program, it's been cut almost by half. And I think when we're thinking about security issues um, and the scope for Australia to be engaged in important discussions and to influence and to build the basis for dialogue, the aid program has an incredibly important role to play. And I think this shift away from Asia in our aid program is really worrying um, in, in that sense. And that's where there is um, a policy difference between Labor and Liberal, with uh, yeah. the Labor government saying if they were to win government, they would increase the percentage of GNI each year. Uh, so the hope is that there would be more to go around, that we have no idea where, how they would do it and in what way. Now, Sharon, we're going to go to questions in a minute. So... Uh 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'll ask you to get ready. Um, on that point, just a reminder if you haven't been to one of these before, no questions from anyone who is a candidate or speaking on behalf of a political party, but all general citizens, very happy to get your questions. So we'll get you ready for that and also we'll go to some of the questions online. I think it's a good chance, if we can, uh, Megan Sharon, to go to the aid policy because it's an important point of difference and it's a good chance to talk about some, some recent history here because... During the Labor years, the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years, they ramped up the aid spending, but only to find also that they couldn't actually roll it out quickly enough to get the program on the, gro- on the ground, and there was a lot of concern about that as well. Then, with the change of government, you know, the, the spending went back again. So it was complex during Labor's first time, wasn't it, Meg? Yeah, but I would also say this government's got a similar problem with their step-up. They have rolled out so many initiatives at once that to deliver it on the ground is going to be very challenging. Whatever government takes over, uh, they've got everything from enhanced police uh, engagement and partnerships, defense engagement and partnerships, Pacific fusion centers to help with maritime security, and on we could go. I could list so forever. So the step-up program, just to bring everyone up to date, is yeah. attached to the foreign policy white paper, and it's a step-up of engagement to the Pacific. And just talk about that, Meg, because they've been making announcements. The foreign policy white paper is all about a pivot towards the Pacific, so moving the strategic engagement towards PNG and the near neighbourhood in the Pacific because of the instability and the threat of China as well. But what's happening as that's rolling out? Well, it's still in a process of rolling out. And there's a bit of a pushback, I think, from the Pacific Islands, and it goes to all these topics that have been discussed, is that why now is Australia doing this pivot? And the interpretation and the assumption is it's to do with China. It's a countering of China. It's about our national interests. It's a highly securitized lens. And yet when they have a chance to say what's most important, which hasn't been raised yet, but when we're talking about global security, we've done it very much from political and economic. If you're sitting in the Pacific Island countries, climate change, and that's what they said at their most recent regional security declaration. The biggest development and security challenge to the Pacific is climate change. And then they look to us to say, where does that fit in your step-up program? Where does this fit in with your enhanced engagement? It's not strong. It's been a point of tension with the Morrison government, especially with emissions reductions. I think we would all be aware from domestic politics that Labour has a very different um, approach and is going to or has a commitment to increase carbon reduction, uh, carbon reductions and to increase renewable energies. That's something that is music to the Pacific Island countries' ears because they're saying we don't get action soon, global action, on climate change 
we aren't going to have any security come up again today with the biodiversity report. Meg, thank you. And it's just a chance for me to explain too that all of these ANU academics are involved directly in briefing Australian governments, in working with Australian government policymakers and neighbourhood policymakers. So they're really the front line. If you want to know what's going on, how Australian policies are being impacted, these are really the people who know. You can't get better sources than that. So we're going to go to the audience now. Um, We've got our microphone, but we'll get the hands up. And so we'll start up here. And while we're waiting, do we have Hassan Rees in the audience tonight? Hassan? Oh, great. Well, why don't we start with Hassan, who had a great question. Hassan, do you, do you remember it? <laughs> <laughs> you do. So why don't you start? Thank you for your question. I thought it was a good place to start. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I don't completely recall the question, but it was on the lines of, uh, um, do you think that this is about time that Australia makes a choice that... Uh, it wants to enhance its relations with its neighbours or it wants to stick to its historical alliances uh, with, with, with the European heritage and with historical alliances with the West. Does it want to stay there? Chris Hassan, thanks for that. Because what you put in the question too, which is a really great point, was you know, is Australia still an outpost of the West? Oh, yes. You know, I and, and I guess that's a big question. <laughs> you know, is it an outpost of the West? And, and if so, how do we change that? Does it need to engage with its neighbours? But thank yep. you very much. Thank you. So, who'd like to start? Well, speaking as the European around, I'll kick off. <laughs> but I, I, I thank you very much for the question. And this is something, a point I really, really do want to make. I think we shouldn't be making a choice. The fact of the matter is that historically speaking, our, his, our legal, political and social institutions are European. That's, that's a fact. But we are located in this region and we need to, and I believe with goodwill, we can do this. We need to both draw on the strengths that we have from our European heritage and our contemporary relations, but also learn and engage much better than I think we, we do in the region. And that's not only in with our colleagues in ASEAN, it's through APEC, it's the broader, what's now described as the Indo-Pacific region. And in that context, we work closely with the EU doing that. So I think uh, it's not a question of a choice, and I think the sooner we move beyond that sort of polarisation is, is really better. Thanks, Shiro. In terms of those middle powers, too, in Australia and the region? Yeah, look, I com completely agree with Anne. It's, um, we don't have to make the choice. It is interesting, though, that we are more Asian than any Asian country when you think of trade shares. So two-thirds of our trade is with East Asia. And that's higher than Indonesia, China, all these other countries. Um, so our economic prosperity lies in this region. I think it's an advantage for us that we have these um, institutions uh, that we rely on and that we continue to protect um, domestically, and yet we engage with our partners in the region. And I, I think, coming back to what Sharon said earlier, it is what we do at home, largely. So... Yeah, we see what's happening in the United States and parts of Europe with rising protectionism, sort of anti-globalization backlash. You know, what's important to us is to learn from that. It's, it's keeping an eye on inequality, sort of getting the social safety nets, making sure they're robust, making sure there's distribution of, of gains from trade to maintain open policies. So that's what we can do at home. But then working with other middle powers in the region, you know, I think there's very little we can do internationally by ourselves, 
apart from demonstration effect, but working with Japan, working with South Korea, working with Indonesia, Malaysia, ASEAN partners. I think that's where we can express our interests and get um, more things moving than otherwise. I might also add, if we make a choice, that can be against our strategic interests. And I know in the Pacific, they've been very clear they wanted to be friends to all. And they have said very clearly to us, don't make us make a choice between you and China. Uh, we want to have a space that is demilitarized and which is welcoming to all because that gives us more access to aid, trade, and finance, which is what we desperately need uh, for development. So they're saying, that's your role. Play it, broker relationships, and don't force choices. Thank you, and great panel discussion. I'd like to try and draw a parallel between two areas of Chinese interest and see if the panel thinks it's valid. So the first would be China's military expansion into the South China Sea, into the Spratleys, where we could all agree, I think, that uh, soft power and multilateralism was not a deterrent in the least. China did think they had a historical claim there. We don't have great interest there ourselves, apart from sea lands of communication and trade routes. And now China's current interest, which we're seeing more of in the Antarctic. We do have a great interest there. We have a geographic footprint there, and it should be an area that's protected strongly by international law and conventions. Should we be worried about China's interest in the Antarctic? Yes. Yes. One of the one of the interesting things, and I might actually hark back to that that previous question, that that really nicely worded question. Um, I, I would wonder what's Western and what's Asian, because what I see, I worked a long time through Southeast Asia in particular, is that the aspiration to rule of law and and human rights equality and uh, liberalism, which has been <clears throat> codified uh, primarily in the the European piece, is something that is shared by. Uh, many of the the stronger countries economically, politically and, and security-wise uh, in, in our region. And the, the issue with the examples that you've provided is that we do see a very um, sophisticated and quite unified um, People's Republic of China uh, saying many of the right things. And if we contrast this to some of the, you know, quite legitimate... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, criticism of the Trump administration saying things that do not accord, uh, we do see that the PRC will say things that sound just right and then do something that is the opposite. Uh, the South China Sea in particular is an example where we've seen uh, a, a country ignoring uh, multilateral engagement and also ignoring the, uh, the mechanisms that we have to arbitrate. And it has instead chosen to engage bilaterally with all other claimants to try and use its its weight uh, and its influence uh, over that. Going back to the the values that both major parties have have said in their statements on foreign policy, this kind of behaviour goes completely against the kind of world that we want to see, and it's one that doesn't benefit any of our countries. <clears throat> the trick will be that, um, as I mentioned, looking at for example, the ALP's platform, it's only, it only has a couple of sentences on China saying we're going to have a nuanced approach, 
We will not choose sides, we'll engage with them as they are. But then very lengthy discussions about free trade, very lengthy discussions about protecting a person's right to labour and uh, being paid appropriately, very strong statements on human rights. So I think that if we had a, a change in government, it would be very difficult to or challenging to reconcile those, but perhaps these short statements are providing that that bit of leeway. Um, but, but yes, we should be concerned because... Uh, trying to protect your own national interest and having the best for your country is not something that is cultural. Uh, it is something that we and the 180-odd members of the of the international community all, all agree to. Thank you. Shiro. Yeah, uh, look, um, I think, you know, just stepping back a bit, it's not a, a direct answer to the question, but um, from this conversation, I think we need to be worried about all large powers because they will ignore some of the rules when it suits them. Um, but that's where you need a collective response, and that's where I think we need to enmesh um, large powers in rules and markets as much as we can. So uh, the current global order that we have the Bretton Woods from the Bretton Woods system was created, negotiated, it was contentious, but it was negotiated after the, the Second World War. Um, and largely it was the United Kingdom putting in place rules um, that everyone else agreed to, it was negotiated with the US, that protected its own interests in the rise of, um, in the face of a rising power, which is the United States. So the hegemon helping to enmesh rules. Now, the United States is taking a very different approach right now as a global hegemon, um, uh, especially in the economic sphere, but I think also in the security sphere uh, to the UK back then. So it's in our interest to enmesh China in as many rules as we possibly can. Um, there are a lot of areas in international commerce and, and elsewhere that are not covered by global rules, and that's what we need to create with the Chinese. But if the Americans are not um, doing it in a multilateral way, um, and there's a tendency for large powers to do these things bilaterally, where they have the most leverage, that's where Australia and other middle powers actually have to, to stand up and, and show some collective leadership. Can I just throw in a quick comment, and it's on um, the, the, the Trump administration being described in that way, and that's just to say that the, the isolationism that we have seen and the lack of pushing that, that, that far to make a difference in global security is something that we've seen in the last two US administrations. So um, <clears throat> when I look at this, it's not something that, would be, that has been caused just by Trump. It is something that we do see cyclically, in the history of US foreign policy, um, going from expeditionary into isolationist. And the concern, I think, is that um, the US is a very, very significant power and it has stepped back in some areas where it hasn't been helpful. And, and I'll, I'll say the Middle East is one of those where the Obama policy was, was not good uh, and a stated pivot to Asia didn't occur. And we're seeing this go further now and it's still not a good trajectory. Yeah, I don't think this is unique to, to Trump. And if we were just, if the rest of the world was waiting for the Trump presidency to be over, that's a big mistake, I think. I think this is more of a structural problem with the United States. Can I just very briefly make a point? On, you know, Shiro made that important point that the Bretton Woods institutions have served us very well um, and showed the value of a rules-based system. But it's in the global economic sphere where those rules have been most effective and have had the most... Um, power to enforce sitting behind them. We also see a very well-developed set of global rules around human rights and emerging around the environment, but with less force sitting behind them in terms of actually being able to implement. And 
I don't think this really goes to your question, but sort of goes to broader issues around a global order. I think the commitment to multilateralism and to trying to, to, to keep in place but to enhance so the human rights and the environmental regimes is fundamentally important. And so for Australia... A commitment to multilateralism is important because that's the only way we can influence there, and that has to be bipartisan. Otherwise, we, we see these kind of ups and downs and peaks and troughs in the way we deal with these issues, um, which, which isn't particularly helpful. Thanks, Sharon. Great. We'll go to this question. Uh, yep. Hi. Uh, oh, gracious. Um, I don't, this might be a bit of a reductionist question, but um, we're talking about declines in freedom isolationism, uh, trade wars. How much of that just came down to the GFC? And can we expect it to blow over? Anne, do you want to have a stab at that? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, personally, I don't think it's... I, I think the GFC came along. It was part of... Um, uh, a, a contribution to a destabilisation. But Personally, I think a rhetoric that is both collective and individual, which is based in fear, is based in division and uh, promotes uh, black and white absolutism, something is good or something is bad and presents dichotomies in a very complex world um, is, is uh, in large part responsible for coming to this this point of where we find ourselves. I think it's necessary individually, collectively, both as societies but also, you know, polities, to be taking conscious decisions, to be seeking to be, to be positive, to, be, uh, to have some faith, to have trust, because at the end of the day, trust is what underpins the multilateral system, whether we're talking about a trading system, whether we're talking about the UN multilateral system, notwithstanding their flaws. And the same thing applies within the EU. What makes these things work is the collaboration, the trust, the relationship. Uh, and to my mind, for a very long time, there has been too much uh, of a reductionist approach to suggesting that... Uh, uh, driving on fear, uh, using fear, and to be perfectly honest, looking at the, the nature of the slogans for the current campaign is really quite abysmal, and it's unhelpful, and it's destructive, and it's corrosive. And what, as Sharon said, what we do at home gets picked up and reflected globally, and we could do ourselves a great service by actually lifting our game collectively and going out and doing what we used to do, which is to, in a sense, try and demonstrate some moral leadership in, in the broader community. Can, can I add to that just quickly, that this, this is why I'm quite passionate about the values statement that both parties have at the core of their foreign policy, because what we're seeing, caused by a range of things, but those you know, students of history, which we, we all are at this, this great university, would say, well, it kind of just looks like the way the history of the world has been, until the, the great liberalism experiment started a couple of hundred years ago. And it doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen just on its own. It happens because people around the world, regardless of where it started, regardless of who wrote about it or talked about it, have said that the idea that each person has intrinsic value in that single life, regardless of the colour of their skin or their gender or anything else about them, is a very empowering thing that has lifted us globally and 
when there are pressures, so the GFC is a really good example of a significant pressure, things that impact those countries that can put their economic might behind it. We've had a lot of discussion of aid programs. That's our country's money going to another country to say, look, we'll help you get, get some sewerage and some running water and some roads, but treat people better. Educate the girls. We know that's a really significant indicator of, of benefit. So this, these, these things have to be created. They have to be fought for and they have to be defended, getting more into my security space. But they, they won't just happen if we sit back and let things run and I would say fall into a relativist argument of saying, well, anything goes, I'm just pleased I don't live there. All right. Thanks. Question here. Thanks, Thanks for this um, very rich discussion. I don't think I'm straying too far from the central I'll just get you to put the microphone a bit closer. Um, thanks for the rich discussion and... Um, I um, trust that I'm not straying too far from the central theme of security issues, but um, I'd just like to highlight that the world has moved on and it is different because of the existence of technology in our um, existence, and um, particularly the internet, and there seems to have been so much controversy over 5G, and I don't know whether any of the panel have some comments about dangers, risk management and concerns around 5G that seem to emerge, you know, both within this country, but also um, in England recently when That's there was great. some sort can, of Can I just add leak. to that the question from Peter McFarlane? Peter, are you here? Peter asked in his online question about technological investments in other countries that are impacting on Australia as well. So I think there's two things, 5G, um, Huawei, obviously, the network, other investments. Who wants to tackle that? I can I can start. With, I've just I have just been at a conference about emerging technologies, and anyway, last week, uh, not a technologist myself, of course. But one of the things is when when we started the conversation this evening, we talked about things just not sitting comfortably in those nice little boxes that they used to. You know, trade is mixed in with security, and um, you know, violent non-state actors are involved in uh, organised crime. Yeah, thing, things move around. One of the really fascinating things with technology, many of us have seen those graphs showing, you know, this is the history of the world goes like this and in the last 40 years, the technological advances and inventions are, are extraordinary. But what happened is that we let those things happen on their own independently, thinking that, you know, technology is good, we can develop some things, and didn't necessarily think until afterwards what else could be done with that. Uh, the fact that, for example, we have extraordinary incidences of, of bullying in Australia of, of school-age kids, um, I think 90% of Australian 14-year-olds have a smartphone and around 30 to 40% of 10-year-olds have a smartphone and they're being bullied at home through this thing, which no-one intended them to do. That wasn't what it was planned to do. But more seriously, uh, Australians are being defrauded millions of dollars via these mechanisms. Um, uh, every every uh, uh, terrorist plot in this country in the last five years, and we've had 15 that would have been a Sri Lanka or a Christchurch if they had occurred, 15 major mass casualty plots... Every single one uh, was aided by the use of encrypted communications like WhatsApp or Telegram that we either have on our phones or we could all sit here and download right now that was created to make the world a better place. So I suppose the thing is we now have to look at everything from a range of perspectives. Is it really good environmentally? Is it really good economically? Is it really good for human rights? Is it really good for security? And this is where the... the 
the world is just incredibly complex. Uh, the piece on 5G is that you do have a, a, a company inside a country where every company is required to follow direction of the government in a way that we don't understand because it doesn't happen here this way. Um, that has been found by the relevant um, expert government agencies in a number of countries to have put things into some of some elements of the uh, the products that they've created and uh, to benefit the security services of that country. And right now we're seeing um, the most extraordinary social uh, experiment in the world as um, China is rolling out uh, its social credit system, following the activities of every person and, and, and monitoring those. So... Um, so, yes, there is a need to be concerned. Probably the main thing is just asking questions and asking that variety of questions around all issues. It's a complex world. Uh, just to add to that, I think what this brings, Jacinta's point particularly with the bullying, but it brings back to the point I was making before. It's about how we as individuals behave with the technology that we've got. Notwithstanding the developments in artificial intelligence, the fact remains that we as individuals get to choose whether we use these devices to bully people or to defraud people or to create, develop plots. And it's working on individuals. I don't say this is the only solution, but I do say that this is not something that gets considered as visibly as it might sometimes until it's too late. We need to be working very much on managing relations and improving the values and, and upholding and defending the values that Jacinta referred to. Look, I'm just going to bring this part to a conclusion. I'll get the rest of you to hold those thoughts for closing remarks because I want to also bring it back to the election and election decisions that people have to make. We've got a week and a half until people are at the polls. And we'll go to some more questions as well. But to bring the panel back, uh, I just want to get each of your thoughts quite briefly if we can. Can you see a difference in approach at the first outing of Prime Minister Scott Morrison or Prime Minister Bill Shorten that will reflect a different type of Australia that people can consider tonight? And also, is there anything in the campaign on foreign policy in Australia's role in the world that you think we should really look at? And I'm going to start with you, Sharon. I was hoping you'd start with the other end so I'd have a little bit of thinking time. <laughs> Um, in terms of the the, the 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 outing, I think it possibly depends where it where it is. In terms of the campaign and the positions of the parties, I think we're not really seeing enough in terms of the discussion around in, what the engagement with the region would be to be able to get a read on exactly what that would look like. Where I think we would possibly see a difference, and it would depend on on the forum, is the the policies that. Labor are putting forward around fairness and um, issues of equity, overcoming inequality, I think do fit with a particular international discourse around the importance of social protection, around the importance of addressing inequality, and that fits very powerfully with the Sustainable Development Goals. And it's not a discourse that, that is always had in relation to sort of hard power and security, but it is a very important part of international, the international um, debates that are being had at the moment. I think of the of what we've seen of the policies of the two parties, the ALP would be engaging in those kinds of conversations in a very constructive way and discussions around social protection and how people are supported through um, periods of, of disruption and crisis are really acute in Asia. 
Um, I don't think we see as much from the coalition, in fact I don't think we see anything from the coalition that would suggest they would be able to engage in those kinds of global conversations. Um, in terms of the, the... It's understandable that the focus of the election will necessarily be on domestic matters, but given the degree of economic integration globally, it means also that things that happen internationally are going to have domestic impact. And this is partly as well why, in my view, we do need to be working out in some way having politicians explain in an accessible fashion why, on the one hand, for example, free trade agreements participating in the multilateral trade arrangement, or indeed the UN for that matter, why this is actually good on the ground and beneficial for individuals, but where we're actually going to see it as well, for example, is in migration. We've, the the dis discourse tends to be dominated by refugees and asylum seekers, but there's a real fragmentation and um, lack of coherence in the overall migration arrangement, which is a problem then for businesses with services. Now, this is something that, that working on most recently, the services sector, which involves a lot of people and is a fragmented structure, and the way in which we have international agreements has an impact domestically. In other words, we've got a vertical structure that we need to articulate and make clearer on the ground, that's a difficult thing to do in the current climate and the way in which political campaigns run. But at least once we have the election, it's to be hoped that some work can be done there to try and make that a little more transparent because it then explains better why things on the ground happen as a consequence of international activities. And thanks. Well, Shira and Megan then just centre on the differences of either potential Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, look, let me try to answer a slightly different question. Because um, of all the, the challenges we've talked about, because, uh, uh, you know, on foreign policy, on the big issues, I think it's a matter of nuance and it's not that much difference. Um, but what's going to be very important is, um, you know, Australia's got a lot to offer in these global affairs and working with partners in the region. Now, to be able to do that effectively, I think whichever side wins, you want a comfortable majority of greater than one. So part of the problem, I think, that we've just gone through is having, um, you know, our leader preoccupied with trying to keep the party together, um, with trying to keep the fringes of a party happy, uh, that has been, uh, has made it very difficult to think strategically, let alone act strategically. There's been very little space to do so. So um, I think um, the instability of uh, so many different prime ministers has, has hampered what we can do in the region, and I think we need a bit of stability. Now, Japan's just gone through um, revolving door of prime ministers seven in seven years before the current prime minister, and now they've got stability. Um, and whatever you think of where Prime Minister Abe comes from or his, his views, it's stability, and Japan's been able to play a leadership role in the region. Right. Thanks, Meg. Um, I, I think, well, I've highlighted the climate change difference, but that's all very nice on carbon uh, reductions. What's going to hurt the Pacific are things like uh, food, energy, and water security. We see here very much little about that, and that's where we could leverage our advantage. That's here at the university with our know-how. How do we extend that into these places so we benefit, they benefit? We've talked about aid, and you can increase it, decrease it, and we've talked about the problem of aid getting traction. I think uh, looking for how the parties start to think differently about 
who we are in this region and how do we interact with these people. Labor mobility has been one where both uh, parties are committed, but it's schizophrenic. Uh, it goes up and down with what our rural industries think. It's not consistent. You can't build a, a development paradigm unless you hold consistent build something up, and it's not just about labor mobility, it's about education, uh, technical education, exchanges, people relationships. So we need a lot more on that human dimension, I think. Thanks very much. And just briefly, Jacinda, because we want to go back to some more questions. Yeah. So just quick thought on either potential yeah. leader. If, um, if we had either, if either leader, whichever leader turns up, I think both will be looking for that stability and then talking about it. What we would definitely see from the language we've seen around the ALP at the moment is a real change in language around foreign policy to be much softer uh, and much more inclusive, which is sort of a natural progression and a much better thing for Australia's place in the world. Uh, there will be, of course, this, this, again, as I've mentioned, this focus on multilateral elements. But looking at the domestic piece, I think that will significantly impact the ability of an ALP government to do many things simply because there is so much detail in a range of very significant domestic programs. One notably is about self-reliance in the foreign policy space and looking to have a republic referendum, and that will have to go into the language around our international partners. Thanks very much. Great. Okay, terrific. That's an interesting thought about rolling out new policy and how that's going to take a lot of energy, obviously, of the government. Let's get as many questions as we can. So we get the hands up. There are a few over this side too. So we'll take, say, three or four questions back-to-back -back if we can. So here first. Thanks. And just keep them short if you can. Um, Dr. Armstrong, you mentioned before, and it's come up a few times, the importance of a kind of multilateral cooperation um, on a number of these topics um, and the importance of accountability mechanisms for global economic superpowers, such as the United States. How do we, um, Australia especially, uh, help to develop mechanisms that and accountability um, in such a dynamic time? Like... The, the kind of ideas around um, rules and strict ramifications in a time of such drastic change. Thanks very much. Now, How can hold we that keep thought, that relevant? Jared, thanks very much. Hold that thought because we will go to that question. Here too. Um, I just want to move from policy onto politicians. Does anyone ha on the panel have a view about how well the shadow, shadow or, or current foreign ministers will represent Australia abroad? And also, what, how powerful they might be within the cabinet. Great, thank you. Good question. So, we've got two good questions mechanisms, Minister and Foreign Minister, and just behind there. Thanks, Belinda. And, yep. And we'll tackle those three. Thanks. Um, I'd like to ask a question about uh, bipartisanship. Um, it's been raised sort of, um, you know, it's come up a few times um, as like largely a, a positive thing. It brings things like stability between governments. It, um, it reassures our international friends and allies. Um, but do you think uh, there could be uh, positives in increased partisanship um, and the debate it brings to the public, um, especially on things like the Pacific, where we've sort of had the, the major parties trying to match each other in things like infrastructure development? Thanks very much. Good question. So we'll just keep the answers really brief so we can get <coughs> some more questions. So new mechanisms that can enhance that uh, cooperation. Um, potential foreign ministers, uh, how they would represent us, and partisanship versus bipartisanship. So just, just a quick tackle, whoever wants to. Yeah, first, Sharon. Yeah, so, so it's an excellent question. It's not easy to do, but we have regional and global 
um, forums and uh, institutions to help. So, you know, we do a lot in APEC in this region in, in agreeing to principles and how we should um, behave towards each other. And these, you know, these talk shops like APEC, it's non-binding cooperation, over time actually do deliver a lot. Uh, you get to know other countries much better. You get to understand their problems. Um, and you have to front up and meet them each, each year. So uh, a lot of what we've done in the region has been transferred over to the WTO and the global system. So we're, we're creating rules in, in a dynamic space around data, um, e-commerce, uh, and environmental goods in the region. Uh, and and the, some of them are being transferred to international level. Uh, just quickly on the shadow cabinet, I think, um, if Penny Wong is a foreign minister, that sends a pretty strong signal um, for us having a, a Malaysian-born um, foreign minister who can speak the language. Um, um, and you know, we've got Chris Bowen, uh, who's learning Indonesian. Now, you know, that's is an experienced um, shadow cabinet. There, they've had experience, and they're I think they're very well prepared. So, whichever side wins, I think there's some experience there and, and preparation that. Thanks. Who wants to tackle the idea of partisanship on foreign policy? Um, I, th I think that's a great question, and I think there is always value in robust, informed political debate. And so when you have parties with different ideas that are contributing to that debate, I think that's a very positive thing. But I do think in terms of long-term thinking and long-term vision, you can only achieve that if there is some level of bipartisanship. And so I think one of the, the challenges that we've had in Australia is that we haven't been able to agree on a long-term vision for this country that both parties will buy into. And I think that's absolutely critical because if we don't have that, then we end up bickering. Um, and it's not informed by us debate, it, it devolves to bickering. Thanks very much, Shannon. We'll just have a few quick, just super quick <coughs> questions. We'll go one, and then who else we've got? Two. Any others? One, two. Just to finish, just super short if we can. So thanks very much, Darren. Thanks. Thank you. My question is actually for Anne McNaughton. Uh, as the UK leaves the European Union, does Australia lose in some way a seat at the table, so to speak? And if so, should we be lo uh, looking to another European state to form a relationship and defend our European ambitions? Good question, thanks. We'll go to this one here too. Um, isn't it, uh, if you have values at the forefront of foreign policy, on the one hand, on the other hand, you've just been a decline in freedom as per the Freedom Index, isn't it almost inevitable that there's going to be a, a that's going to create a very fractious relationship with most, with many of our allies, especially when Australia can't do very much, for example, when China discriminates against Uyghurs or, and likewise with Myanmar and Rohingya. Uh, isn't there going to be a fractious relationship built into it when you have values against declining freedoms? Okay, so let's start with the EU question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that the UK is actually going to leave the EU on, <laughs> on, on current track record. Um, secondly, uh, no, I think the, the, e, the EU has a direct, and I think this is what's significant about the FTA now, we have a direct connection with the EU as a whole, but we also have active engagement with uh, uh, Republic of Ireland, Germany, uh, and other member states as well. I would also add, though, that we're continuing, and the UK, for its part, will continue to nurture its relations with Australia and other countries as well, notwithstanding the stasis that Brexit's representing at the moment. So, no, I don't see it as being the sort of cliff-edge problem for Australia that, that 
Some Thanks might very think. much. The values question. Who wanted to jump in there? I would just like to say values are there regardless. So you either declare them or you don't. Yes. And it's particularly frustrating when they're undeclared. Yes. So if there's a debate, let's put down what our values are. And if there's differences, let's discuss it. And certainly that has been a discussion in our region, is we should be clear about what our values are and what's driving our policies uh, and put them out there. And I think that's a valuable thing to do. There's disagreement. Let's have it openly. And, I think and the there big are issues. Always, sorry. sorry, Sharon. It's very quick. I think there are also different ways of talking about values. You know, you can attempt to hit other people over the head with your values, or mm. you can engage in a dialogue, including through multilateral avenues. Mm. And so, I think it is possible to talk about values, but in a way that reduces the level of confrontation, but results in light rather than heat. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say something quite sim simpler as my, as my second point. The first one was that all big, important issues are incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. So it will never just be an easy one. And if it's easy, then we're not playing our role as a middle power, as we've discussed here. We're not actually you know, using our weight for good to engage with these really, really wicked problems. Uh, but the second is, and <clears throat> excuse me, I, I think of Indonesia in this case and also some you know, countries like Iraq and Afghanistan where we've had a long-standing defence relations... It's this long-standing, um, consciously long-term engagement that will lead to, well, we'll help you with this very basic practical piece here, but then as we do it, talk about how you, how you deal with people and how you progress from something that is very different uh, to, to, from Australia into a local version of something that's on a path for greater freedom and greater value. And... <clears throat> Again, I look, at, I look at the Indonesia that I first dealt with um, in my early 20s and my friends there now and what an extraordinary country that is and one that very consciously is grappling with a whole range of really difficult issues as it looks to progress to being more democratic and to uh, embrace human rights, rule of law and trade. Uh, it, it's a complex piece, but you've got to stay to the end. Mm. Thank you very much. Well, we are nearly out of time. This is our third debate. Our, our first one was on the political, general political situation in Australia right now. Last week was on policy, looking at the particular policy positions around climate change, health policy, tax policy, etc. This week it's been looking at foreign policy and next week you can still register to come to the press club. Don't forget, yes, you will have to pay a small amount of money as the press club, but there is alcohol involved and there is antipasto <laughs> and it will be a lot of fun and I promise more laughter as each glass of wine or <laughs> lemonade or mineral water is consumed. So in closing... Uh, just want to get a little final thought from each of you. And when I shut down earlier the discussion on 5G and technology, please feel free to throw it in. But just finally, you know, in a week and a half, we'll be voting. What are your final thoughts on Australia's place in the world and our politicians in general approach on that? Just very brief thoughts. Sharon, we'll let you finish because I hit you with it last time. We'll start with you, Anne. And then go this way. Thanks. <laughs> I really hope they're going to perform better than um, I think we have done to date. I think we've got great capacity and uh, with a bit more cooperation, which I'm hoping we've moved beyond that very toxic, antagonistic stage, I think we, we have great potential, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, I, I guess we have to hope, and I think there is hope. I think it came up before, I think Sharon said it, um, we've lost a lot of trust in institutions, and I think we've lost some trust with some of our um, partners in the region. So I think it's, it's hard work is ahead of us in, in rebuilding that domestically so that we can engage fulsomely internationally. Thank you, Meg. 
Uh, we've talked about that the region is changing, it is maturing, and that's certainly the area I work in. And I think <clears throat> when we get a new government, it would be good if they started to think a little bit out of the box, not think about Me Too continuing, but how we might do things differently to broker the collaboration, the cooperation in different development paradigms that we could have a potential to advance in our own region. Thank you very much. I think we're going to continually face that dilemma that... Uh, politics and elections are about domestic issues and we will find it difficult to get the attention and the sustained focus of either party on changing, in particular, uh, any of these elements that we've talked about in terms of our foreign policy. But the flip side is, again, and I love that Catherine asked a question about personalities, um, when you work in the sort of jobs that we do, many of us have had the, the privilege of briefing uh, leaders and ministers and so on and I have to say that even even with the, you know, the the government's changes, you've got some people who really do know their stuff, and certainly in um, Penny Wong, Richard Miles, and others like that, who've been sitting in these their shadow portfolios for a very long time, and seeking the support. You know, um, academics are loved by opposition people because they don't have their departments to give them briefings, and I have to say I found them very curious and open and wanting to take advice. So my hope is that. Whoever is in government does seek advice on how we can uh, make Australia better in the world and use what we have for good, bringing together these very complex strands. We do have a really good basis, and this is where bipartisanship is good. We don't have quite enough informed debate, which is where a bit of part partisanship probably would be good and, and urge people along. But I think we're in, they do take it seriously, uh, and... We've seen a few hiccups in the way Australia is seen in the world as well as how those we, we are closest to are seen and that beholdens everyone to stand up. Thank you very much. Sharon. So, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I, I think the point that Jacinda makes is right that elections are always going to be focused on domestic policy but I would reiterate the point that I made at the beginning that our place in the world is determined as much by our domestic policy as by our foreign policy. So I think we need to be looking at both of those things very carefully. And the final point I would make is I think many of us are completely disillusioned with the way in which politics have played out in Australia recently and the performance of various politicians of, of all colours. And we would often say we would want our politicians to grow up I'm going to say the opposite. I would like to see our politicians behaving more like children. And the reason I say that is I think one of the fabulous things that's happened in Australia and around the world recently is the climate strike by school children who are not old enough to vote. But who are, and I've spoken to children as in my role in the Children's Policy Centre about their motivations. And regardless of their other views, we're hearing children, young children, saying, Climate change matters, the environment matters, and we are going to work together to try to get change. Wouldn't it be great to hear our politicians saying, we have different views, but we are going to work together to try to make good change in this country and in the world? Thank you very much. So I'll just go through our panel once more. Thank you very much. Sharon Bessel, Jacinta Carroll, Meg Keane, Anne McNaughton and Shiro Armstrong. Thank you very much. And thank you to you for coming out. The weather has changed a little bit. It's a little bit chillier tonight, but even colder by next week. It's going to be great at the Press Club. Please do register. We're looking forward to seeing you. And ha hands up those who will make it fourth time if they get to the Press Club, if they will have been to all of them. Yay. Wow. Excellent. Wow. wow. Terrific. <laughs> Can't wait to see you. Thank you very much. Engage civil Thanks, society. Yeah. Thank you.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.